Hey, this is Robbie Baseball from the Dingers Fantasy Baseball Podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 281, Scarface Movie Review. Brian, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. We're back. We've been away for a few weeks. I had to deal with a personal family matter, so so I was unavailable. Now, uh, last time, Derek, you wanted us to go back and watch Scarface from 1983, and then have our good friend Greg Martin join us to review the film together. So, so actually, here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Greg Martin. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming back, man. Always a pleasure having you join us. And always a pleasure to be on. Thanks, guys. I always enjoy being getting the invites and coming on. I enjoy talking music, movies, whatever it is. So thanks for having me. You're usually our resident music expert, you know, but this time is a little different. You're going to review uh, this movie with us, so it should be good. Uh, Derek, uh, how have you been these past few weeks? We haven't talked in a while. Been good. Been good. Been uh, busy, uh, you know, on and off with uh, some personal stuff some work stuff um i was uh, chatting with uh, greg before we got on mic saying you know normally when we have a long hiatus i have a list of like 30 things that i've watched i try and race through all of them i have a very short list today because honestly i forgot to write them down which i normally do so <laughs> right. I, i'm struggling before we got i'm like what did i watch in the last couple weeks so really you're gonna hear about the three or four movies that i watched this week because i honestly don't remember what i watched since that, the last show. that's fine why don't you start us off what, what what is new in pop culture for you all friend? right well i got two really oldie goldies okay. from the seven from the Ooh. 70s and then i got two uh newish movies from the the 2000s so uh let's let's just start new and go backwards okay so uh I started with something that I actually just watched yesterday on a repeat. I'd watched it before, seen it a few times, really enjoy it, and really enjoyed it a lot on this rewatch was the movie The Social Network from 2010. It's the Facebook movie with Jesse Eisenberg, uh, directed by uh, David Fincher, written by Aaron Sorkin. Uh, This movie, in my opinion, just gets better and better as you watch it. Uh, Yes, it's it's a fictionalized, somewhat fictionalized, somewhat sensationalized reimagining of what actually happened. Some of the facts are drawn and inspired by real life, but a lot of them have been glamorized for the movie and for storytelling purposes. And, and I, that's fine. But given how big and influential and potentially dangerous and and how big an advertising force in the world Facebook has become, this movie starts to like really take on new life as you continue to watch it years later as it's almost like you know a, a glimpse into uh where things might be going and so i, I really enjoyed it i mean I, aaron sorkin is one of my favorite screenwriters he really knows how to how to write a movie especially if it's a movie that's got a lot of dialogue so i watched this the other night i really really liked it chris i don't think we've reviewed this movie on no. our show and i think before the end of this calendar year that one's going to be coming up as a pick from me we'll put so, that one on the board 
Yeah. Okay. okay. So that was the only one I watched that I'd seen before. And then I had a chance to watch three movies I've never seen before. Hmm, cool. uh, again, from 2008, a new wish movie, Clint Eastwood, Gran Torino. Have either of you ever seen this one? Yep. So this yeah, one is going to surprise you. I've seen that movie. Believe wow. it. Wow. My wife made me watch it one time. Yeah. So I've mm-hmm. been sort of doing the Clint Eastwood uh, f- festival here. They seem to just they must have like the Clint Eastwood movie pass on the movie channel because they, they've been showing all his movies from all the decades. And this one came up. I'd never seen it before. I've heard some things about it, but I didn't really know a lot about it. And I, I really liked it. Like I liked it way more than I thought I was going to. And I, I asked a few of my friends, I'm like, oh, have you seen this? And they're like, yeah, it's really good. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know how this one sort of slipped through my radar for 15 years. But no, I really enjoyed it. Um, then uh, I went back and I watched Burt Reynolds, 1973, Seamus. Oh, nice. Uh, so now I recently watched Gator. That was, that was before he had the mustache. Uh, no, he had the mustache. Oh, did he have the mustache? Yeah, because there's some the 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 woman I can't think of her name. She was making fun of the mustache in it. Oh. Um, it, again, I don't really know a lot of Burt Reynolds' really old work, so I didn't know what to expect. And this one, he's a uh, like a private eye, former police detective, and he's uh, looking into a murder investigation. And you know, it, again, it's funny to watch these movies that are that old to see. Yes, in the 70s, this is how things would have been done. But you watch it from today and you're like, wow, they're looking up records in paper filing cabinets and they're like phoning people to leave paper messages. And they're like, yeah, when he comes in a few hours, we'll let him know you called. And it's like it's it reminds you that we haven't already always had cell phones. And sometimes people didn't have instant access to information. But but again, it's a fun movie with uh, with Burt Reynolds. It's you know, it's certainly not his best movie, but it was worth watching. I was glad I watched it. And then. The Crown Jewel, this is the one that I watched the, a couple of weeks back that just has stuck with me since then. It's a movie from 1979, <laughs> nominated for Best Picture. It's called Being There. It was oh, yeah. the last movie starring Peter Sellers. He was nominated for an Academy Award. The movie was nominated for Academy Award. This movie was fantastic. Again, I don't know how I ever had never heard of this one before, but it showed up. I, I thought, oh, this sounds interesting. Uh, again, though. Being from the late 70s, you watch it through today's lens and a lot of the stuff you sort of go, well, why aren't they doing this and why aren't they talking about that? And essentially, it's almost uh, the main character is is, uh, by today's standard, you would say he's probably uh, autistic or or has some some uh, mental health issues going on in some way, shape or form. Uh, It's it's it reminded me a little bit of Forrest Gump, where people in the movie sort of just refer to him as things like simple and, and plain spoken. And it's like. By today's standard, you're watching it and sort of going, well, why is nobody saying this, that, and the other thing? It's like, well, because in the 70s, that just wasn't the way things were. But uh, fantastic performance from Peter Sellers, uh, arguably the best work of his career. Uh, the movie itself is really good. It's, um, yeah, I, I don't really, can't really describe too much without giving too much away. But if you have, a, if you see, I think I got it on T- Turner Classic Movies. So like, if you see it show up in the lineup and you have not seen Being There with Peter Sellers, you should record it and watch it. It's fantastic. So, so four pretty good ones for me yeah. this week. And Greg, anything to share in the world of pop culture for you, my friend? Yeah, well, uh, with uh, my my love and my passion gone away until September, uh, no more football. <laughs> uh, I've been uh, catching up uh, with movies, but uh, at the theater. So uh, I've been uh, doing a, a run of movies at the theater, and uh, I got to... Um, check out uh, this past weekend i went to see uh, the musical mean girls oh uh, yeah it was 
It was kind of disappointing. Uh, I prefer the original a little bit better. Uh, I didn't care for... I've never been a fan of when uh, Broadway tries to make their Broadway shows uh, like a Hollywood movie. Uh, like, like the producers or what? what didn't they yeah, do that like recently? producers or like, uh, you remember they put out Cats? Yes. You know, which was terrible too. Rent, um, I think they did it with, yeah. Yeah, Rent was uh, rent was terrible. Uh, so I, I always I always say it's a bad idea when you take a Hollywood movie and make it a Broadway play. And it's terrible when you take a Broadway play and make it a Hollywood movie. But now you've taken a Hollywood movie, made it a Broadway play, and tried to take the Broadway play and make it a Hollywood movie. Um uh, casting didn't work. Uh, I found the the songs to be rather dull and boring. Uh, I prefer the original uh, version so much better. Uh, it, mind you, though, when the movie ended and the lights came on, it was me and one other guy in the theater. That was it. Uh, <laughs> the rest of it was all all uh, teenage girls or older ladies out on girls' night kind of thing that are. You know, uh, you know, they, I they, thought they, you were they, saying they, for a second yeah. there the lights come up and the only two people in the theater were you no, and some other guy. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought. You meant. I'm like, wow. No, it, I was amazed. It must have been because it was a holiday this weekend, but it was packed. Like, the theater was completely sold out. So, uh, But it was me and one other guy. That was the, we were the only two males in the theater. Uh, I also uh, went to see um, uh, Jason Statham's movie, The Beekeeper. Oh, yeah. How was that? Yeah. Uh, let, me, let me rephrase the question. How was it? Compared to other Jason Statham movies, <laughs> it was it, it was a Jason Statham movie. There we go. Okay. Yeah, if you suspend disbelief and just accept the uh, ridiculousness of how the plot is advancing, you know, uh, the one guy who's you know uh, a, a former government agent that lives off the grid and they can't they can't find any information on him is able to defeat the CIA, the FBI, the Marines, the, uh, you know, Navy SEALs, uh, the uh, elite hit squads, uh, all within 24 hours. <laughs> hey, whoa, 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 no spoilers. I haven't seen it yet. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry I, I was going to rush out this weekend. Yeah, no, no spoiler, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of punching and kicking and guns. Uh, uh, it, like I say, it's, it's one of those ones if you, if you happen to be sitting on the couch on a Saturday night with nothing to do and it comes on the streaming service, check it out. And uh, last but not least, I went to go, um, I was very excited to go see it, uh, which was the new Bob Marley biopic, uh, Bob Marley, One Love. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, uh, it, it kind of disappointed a little bit. It was okay if you if you don't really know a lot about Bob Marley, like you're just kind of learning about him, uh, you might find it all right. But myself, uh, you know, I've I've read a, a number of books and watched a, a number of different documentaries about him, and uh, I felt they really uh, skipped over a lot of his major contributions to music, but also his major contributions to like world peace and uh, bringing a, a, a reggae to to like white people in North America that, you know, didn't know anything about it prior to, you know, Bob Marley all of a sudden becoming a, uh, a pop radio success. Uh, they really, they really skimmed over that. Uh, like the soundtrack was great. Like if you, if you, if you want to learn about the, the music, it's fantastic. Uh, and, and I highly recommend if you've never done it before, uh, Bob Marley's album Exodus is talked about in this, this album, in this movie. And it was referred to by, uh, Time Magazine is the greatest album of the 20th century. Uh, that might be a stretch, but uh, it was. it's definitely one that if you don't have it in your record collection, try and find a way to download it on the Spotify or the iTunes or whatever. It's worth at least listening to once 
The other thing I'd say about the Bob Marley movie that was kind of like, uh, okay, maybe not. Uh, they stay true to the fact that he, he's, he's Rastafarian, so uh, the dialect was very, very difficult at times sometimes to understand. Um, you know, there were points, uh, parts where I was like, I do not understand what he just said um, kind of thing. So it, it was good. It's worth watching, but uh, no need to rush out and see it on a big screen or anything like that that again if it comes on the streaming service take a look but um you know out of 10 i'd say maybe six and a half hmm. uh so guys i got something for you i've been going on a ticket buying spree a little surprising for me so i got tickets to see the canadian band glass tiger in april i got front nice. row seats <laughs> so nice. nice i don't know how well they're known in the states so our american listeners might not know who they are but um, but I got that. And then I also got tickets to see Jerry Seinfeld in May. And oh, then wow. in July, my wife got us tickets to see Def Leppard, Journey, and the Steve Miller Band. Nice. <laughs> it's over nice. in Detroit. So we, we've got a bit of a drive for that one. Oh, Def, okay. Def Leppard and Journey are coming to Toronto. And that would be closer for us to go to. But they're coming with heart. And my wife knows how much I love the Steve Miller Band. So she got us tickets in Detroit for that one. Um, by the way, I used to get made fun of on my old podcast, Dear Mr. Fantasy, whenever I said Detroit, apparently I say it with like a Canadian accent and I pronounce it wrong. Detroit. How are you supposed to say it? De Detroit? Is that what the I people say Detroit. I just say Detroit. Detroit. Uh, see, I always Detroit. say it. That just sounds weird to me. I don't know. Just so. Anyway, I used, people used to always make fun of me and I'll probably get emails for that. But uh, anyway, I also got this. Here's your dad joke of the week. So, guys, I thought since we're doing Scarface this week that I should do a Cuban dad joke. <laughs> nice. So, all right. Uh, did you know that you can get a slice of lemon pie in Cuba for a dollar fifty, and in Jamaica you can get a key lime pie for a dollar? Those are the pie rates of the Caribbean. Wow. Let's hope that's a joke that doesn't get four sequels. <laughs> let me let me tell you, that's not the Cuban joke I was going to tell. It would have just been one long sensor beep. Kelly <laughs> Clarkson! In your face, in the face. Oh, got to be, you know sh And we're going to do a police lineup. Back yourself a pro. Let me get that gray matter back before you get TCB in, man. The real money's in f***ing fart jokes. They go down and smack them, yak them. Well, what do you expect there, Canadian? Why are you always in such a bloody rush, man? But he has a day, 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 day. Yeah, look here. I can make some of that grease and chomp it on some butter, drag it through the gun. Uncle f***. Ooh, I'm glad that's not me. I hate to break it to you, lady, but you're sucking on my arm. That was from the last time you joined us. <laughs> that, that was a good one, man. Yeah. Laughing at there you go. Um, okay, so guys, believe it or not, until this week, I don't know how this ever happened, but I had never seen the movie Scarface. I, wow. I'm not, and I'm not sure why. It was just, it was like never on my radar as something that I wanted to see. I think I was always busy watching Airplane and Blues Brothers and Stripes and Meatballs and stuff like that, you know, over and over. I'm, I'm more of a comedy guy, I guess. So so maybe, Derek, maybe you could just start us off and just briefly tell us why you wanted to watch this movie and review it here on the show. 
Well, partly was uh, I'd been talking to Greg uh, about having him come back on the show. And uh, so he and I had been chatting and I'd, I'd suggested to him instead of coming on into a top five, which he's done with us a few times, why not come on into a movie review? And this was one of the ones that he'd suggested. Um, and honestly, I hadn't seen this version of of Scarface in, geez, probably 20 years or more. Uh, but both Greg and I had a chance to watch the original Scarface uh, when we were at university together. And uh, like from 32, the 19th. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, I, I'd seen the original. I've seen this version a couple of times, but I hadn't seen it in a long, long time. And so when Greg brought it up, I thought, you know what? This is probably a good one to put on the radar. And then uh, when we were looking at the schedule and we thought, hey, this could be a good time to bring him on the show. I was like, you know what? Let's let's do Greg a solid and put this on because I, I have a strong feeling that this is a movie he really likes. And I'll let him tell you more about that. Yeah, makes sense. And, and uh, Greg, you obviously wanted to join us to talk about this movie. So why? Why this one? Well, because um, I'm staring at 18 pages of notes. <laughs> Like Compa- I could compared honestly, to my half a page, honestly, t- if you were to sit down and like fully talk to me about this, this movie, uh, I, I could give you two full podcasts of my, uh, my opinions and, uh, how I feel about this movie out of all the movies I've ever seen in my life. Like, and I mean, hundreds upon hundreds, this is my favorite movie of all time. It is to me, at least I know some people may not agree, but to me, it is as close to perfect a movie as a movie can get. Uh, there is one aspect of the movie where I, every time I watch it, I'm like, you know what, man, I'd like to either get rid of that part of the movie or change it around to make it to make it perfect. But to me, just the the story, the characters. Uh, amazingly, one of the things too, I, I never really pay attention much to the music, but e- even the music in this movie was 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 the perfect use of everything. I hate Al Pacino. I can't stand Al Pacino. I hate watching anything that Al Pacino is in. I I can't watch anything he's in, but he is so good in this movie that when I watch it, I don't see Al Pacino. I see Tony Montana. Like, it's that good. Like, you forget that Al Pacino is Tony Montana because he is that good. And just ever since the first time I watched it and every time I watched it afterwards and afterwards, I just found things that I fell in love with even more than the, the other time I watched it. And I've probably watched this movie probably over 60 or 70 times. It's just from beginning to end, I think it's fantastic. So Greg, it's safe to say if I don't like this movie, then we can't be friends anymore. Right. That's how this works. <laughs> no, so, no, that's what makes the world go around. Okay. You know, difference I, of opinion. I've lost a few friends over the years based on my movie taste to say this. Yeah. And so the thing is, I just want to set this up a little bit because coming into it, like I had no idea what this movie was even about. For some reason, I always thought it was a biopic about Al Capone. And, and I wasn't sure where I got that idea from, but I, I did some reading about the film and it's 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 loosely based on that 1932 version that, um, that Derek mentioned, which was loosely based on Al Capone. So maybe... Yeah. In a roundabout way, that's where it kind of came into my consciousness. I don't know. So, having never seen it before, I watched it for the very first time this week. Are you ready for my take on it? Yep. This movie was fantastic. Where, where the hell has this movie been all my life? It was amazing. Like, it was amazing. I think you hit it on the head. It's about as close to perfect as you can get. Like, yep. where do I start? The performances, the style... The direction, 
like the subject matter, the pacing, it's all so, so, so good. So I guess we can still be friends. Great. Absolutely. Oh my God. This movie's so good. Oh, frick. Okay. So let's, I want to start with the box office because when this film came out, it wasn't all that popular with audiences or with critics for that matter. So it was uh, directed by Brian De Palma. And it was made on a budget of about $30 million. It grows $66 million, but that was worldwide. It only took in about $19 million in the U.S. So it finished 40th overall that year with $19.2 million, just ahead of Max Dugan Returns and behind such luminaries as Breathless and Best Friends and the toy. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it was not really all that popular. Um, there was a lot of popular movies that year, though, too. Like, I mean, Return of the Jedi came out. Tootsie made most of its money that year. Flashdance, Trading Places, War Games, Octopussy. It was a good year for movies. But, uh, but it wasn't all that popular when it came out. It's taken time to almost become a cult classic, eh? Greg? I think, I think the reason for it was is just uh, the, the time that it came out, there hadn't been anything on that level of violence and chorus language uh, that you know we've we've come become accustomed to in in 2024. But back then, you know, it was that was the amount of violence and the amount of language was just shocking. And you know, they were also a lot stricter with age. Uh, uh, you know, putting the age on the the movie, like you know, 18A and 14A and. PG and whatnot. So I think with the restriction of it being really for 18 and over, it limited the amount of people that could go see it. Um, but again, you know, back then, uh, I don't think Hollywood and people were ready for the amount of violence and the amount of language that was, was in the movie that in today's day and age, we kind of deem acceptable now. Derek, you were too young to see it in the theater when it came out, but all those years you spent working at Blockbuster, I'm assuming you saw it on videotape when you worked there. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think uh, that's, uh, I think I saw it in my last year of high school. I definitely saw it before I went to university, but I do remember when uh, when I was working at Blockbuster. So because the movie's so long, it was on two video cassettes. And I can remember this movie was out every weekend. Always somebody was renting it. Uh, and uh, it's one of those ones where I think to your point, uh, it didn't necessarily hit with audiences when it first came out. But as it gained a reputation, as it got word of mouth, as people started to watch the movie, and I think with movies that came out years later, like even Goodfellas, that sort of glamorized, you know, the the criminal element, but also by the end of the movie, you see them get their comeuppance. Uh, you know, it, it started to be a genre in and of itself. And as more and more movies started to hit within that genre, everyone who enjoyed those newer movies at the time went, well. If this is where we are now, what came before it? And then so they would go back and say, well, I liked, I watched Goodfellas and I love it. What would you recommend? And we're like, have you seen Scarface? Like that should be your very next pick if you've never seen it. And I think that's the kind of, uh, that's that's how it built its audience. And, and um, I know that over the years, Scarface – uh, has been made available for home home ownership through first on video, then on on DVD, and then on Blu-ray, and it's one of those movies that always seems to get the royal treatment when it comes to an anniversary edition. So, Greg, I think you and I both have the I think it's the 20th anniversary edition. It comes in like a faux leather box, and you open it up, and it's got like the red satin. It almost looks like the lining of a coffin with the movie, the special edition of the movie inside. It comes with all the uh, all these like collectible. 
suit ads as well as a copy of the original Scarface movie. Like that was the 20th anniversary box. Lines of Coke in it. (laughs) I literally opened up this week to watch the movie. I got it for Christmas year, 20 years ago and never opened it because I already had a regular copy of the DVD and I just never felt the need to open this collectible box set. And so this week I'm like, it's a perfect time. I opened it up and it was like, man, oh man, like, and then I went online and sure enough, they did a 20th anniversary, a 25th, a 30, a 40. Like this movie has had so many treatments over and over again because people, people love it. Just like you guys are saying, like people think it's great. They think it's a near perfect movie. They find a lot to enjoy about it. And so much of sort of quote gangster life and gangster style has become a part of pop culture and it's inspired other movies, other TV shows, all, all sorts of music is inspired by it, rightly or wrongly, uh, whether you agree with it or not, whether you enjoy the, the things that it has inspired. And I think that that's part of what's continued to keep this movie uh, at the top of pop culture, despite the fact that it's, what, almost 40 years old now, or it is 40 years old now. Yep. So. And we'll go back to some of those influences in a second. I just want to cycle, cycle back to something, because I think you're making a good point about video. Because the thing was, if, you, if we got to go back in time for a second, and you know this, back in the 80s and 90s, when movies were released on VHS, they were very rarely priced to sell to the general public. Like, usually the VHSs were priced so high that only the movie rental stores would buy them and rent them out. And the first big movie that I remember that went sort of straight to sell-through pricing was Batman in 1989. Mm-hmm. And when Scarface was first released on VHS, it was priced at $79.95. It was the very first high-priced VHS to sell 100,000 copies. So wow. fans obviously weren't shy about spending 80 bucks on the videotape. And the thing is, 80 bucks in 1984 would be the same as a DVD coming out today that cost $240. Wow. Like to put it in perspective. So, well, and I think, Chris, I think one of the reasons that it probably sold well, aside from the fact that it's just a good movie, is even if this movie got shown on late night TV or something like that, it was probably edited for time because it's so long. They had to cut parts out. It was probably edited for violence. It was probably edited for language. So, fans of the movie wanted to get that original experience. They weren't getting that on TV. They were always getting some edited version of the film. So, I think that that in part was probably what was driving, you know, sales, despite the incredible price point. Okay. So let's dig into this a bit. I I thought it was interesting because it's set in Miami, but it was shot pretty much all in California because the Miami tourist board, they weren't exactly keen on a movie depicting Cuban drug dealers in the city, you know, go figure. They didn't think it would be good for like tourism. Right. So although the producers were able to secure a permit to shoot one scene there, They shot the chainsaw scene in Miami Beach, believe it or not. (laughs) And this film, when it came out, was originally given an X rating. So because of the profanity and the drugs and the violence and everything. And but back then, like the thing was like an X rating had a connotation of being a pornographic film. You know, that kind of got changed and they call it like a triple X now or something. But, you know, but back then, like an X rating, everyone thought, oh, well, is that pornographic? And that wasn't always the case. Midnight Cowboy back in 69 was given an X rating and it won best picture, but the filmmakers of Scarface did not like it. The fact that it got an X rating. So they really, really, really fought and they actually went to an an appeal board and they won and they got it moved down to an R rating. There's like you said, there's a lot, you know, at the time, like a lot of swearing, they swellers, you know, they use the F word over 200 times in it and the violence and stuff in it. But 
it's like even by today's standards and stuff like there's it's still an r-rated movie like it's not beyond that right no right? it's it's if it came out if it came out in today's day and age it would still be an r-rated oh yeah absolutely an r oh, but i'm saying like it doesn't it doesn't warrant x rating like where you know no. like nobody else is allowed into it under 18 or something like that so i think, I think there was like one brief scene of nudity yeah, I don't even remember anything. I don't think there was anything, you know. Uh, there's there's one point he calls uh, Manny and he's in bed with a blonde and she's topless. Oh, okay. yeah, right. Oh, right, 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 right. That's right. Yeah, there was the one. Um, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the cast. We always like to get into this. So Pacino, I think it's interesting, Greg. You love this movie so much. You love his performance, but you don't like Pacino that much. But the thing is, could anyone else have played this part? Like looking back on it, no, absolutely. Oh. I know it was originally offered to. Uh, they were really trying to get De Niro to do it. Yep. He was the first choice. And uh, I, if, if you put De Niro in that role, no, it wouldn't have had the same effect. Al Pacino dove right into it. He he, he hired language coaches. Uh, he went and found uh, people who are uh, experts with knives and guns, so he could figure out how to uh, properly hold a knife, properly shoot a gun. Uh, he even hired Roberto Duran, uh, the famous boxer. Uh, to be his personal trainer so he could get uh, more into like a boxer shape uh, for his body so that he, he had more of a physical appeal to him. Like he really, even on the set, uh, people weren't supposed to speak English to him. They, they wanted him to, to speak uh, so that he would be speaking properly Cuban when he was uh, filming. So I, I think hiring Pacino, like I said, I, he was so good in this that I, I don't even remember it's Al Pacino every time I watch it. Like, by the end of it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's Al Pacino. Like, he is just so good in it, you forget. That's a tribute to to him as an actor because, I mean, he's not Cuban. He doesn't really look Cuban, <laughs> you know, so to pull it off is a little a little tough. I, I found that, that, that his this role actually reminded me a bit of Michael Corleone like, because it's this kind of flawed character who is basically evil, but... He also humanizes the character in a way. Yep. I think he does it even more than the direction in the script. So, uh, Derek, thoughts on Al Pacino in this role? Did, did you like? Do you like yeah. Al Pacino in general coming into this? Unlike Greg, I do. I do. I find that uh, you know sometimes he can dial it up a little more than necessary, but mm -hmm. uh, I think that's more the older Al Pacino sort of leaning into that reputation. Uh, I definitely thought that his performance was fantastic. One of the things that actually surprised me is. Once I finished watching this movie, you know, just this week, I went, as we often do, I went to the IMDb and looked up the trivia and I looked up to see how many Academy Awards it was nominated for. And I was more than a little surprised to see it was zero, not a zero. single one at all. And it was, was nominated for a Razzie Award for Worst Director. I saw that. Mm -hmm. I, uh, wow. And I think this is another case where it's it's a combination of there was a lot of competition this year from a lot of very popular very mm -hmm. mainstream very acceptable movies um so that obviously was a huge uh obstacle to to overtake that but i think again in the time and the age when this came out this was at the time not the kind of movie that the that they wanted to glamorize as as something that should be winning best picture or be nominated mm -hmm. for best i mean possibly be nominated for best actor but uh you know it it took a decade before you started seeing more of the scorsese type films the tarantino style films getting these nominations but someone had to lay the groundwork and this movie sort of you know takes the credit for that it's it's sort of the the first oh, well aside from the godfather which of course was more critically acclaimed um, but I think that it was just so much 
too much too soon, too much violence, too much swearing. Uh, it was just people didn't know what to make of it. That That's sort of my my assumption, because honestly, I, I don't know and I don't remember. I was yeah. too young when it came up. Also, yeah, I feel the Academy Awards, the Academy Awards, actually, mm-hmm. I feel they, they uh, when they gave Al Pacino a Best Supporting Actor for Son of a Woman, uh, I feel that was a, a token when that oh, they sort sure. of they sort of said, you know what, we we want to apologize for overlooking uh, Tony Montana and Scarface. So here's, you know, here's best supporting actor for Son of a Woman. And uh, I sort of feel the Academy kind of gave them that as a, as a token apology award. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As they often, often do. Um, oh, yeah. Michelle Pfeiffer, I want to touch base on her for a second, because this was like really her, her only second film. She, up until then, she did Grease 2. That was it. And... It was funny because Pacino and De Palma both didn't want her to be cast, but the producer did. He obviously won out. Um, Glenn Close was the original choice for the role. I cannot see her in this part. I don't even know if she would have been available to do this because she would have been doing World According to Garp, which worked out pretty good for her. But I just cannot picture her in this role. They also considered Gina Davis, Carrie Fisher, Sharon Stone, Sigourney Weaver, and Kelly McGillis. But... uh, Pfeiffer reminded me a little bit of Kathy Moriarty in Raging Bull. You know, this like unknown actress playing this super sultry character. I thought she was great. Very, very well cast in this. I thought she was great. Greg, I, I, I normally don't find Michelle Pfeiffer to be attractive. I, I, I find people sort of overdo how attractive Michelle Pfeiffer really is. But in this movie, she was she was gorgeous looking. She was she was really good looking, and I was actually reading where, in order to maintain uh, kind of a, she wanted to have that appearance that she was, sort of, uh, especially as the movie progressed, where she was sort of, coke addicted and mm-hmm. you know not getting a lot of sleep and everything, uh, that she her diet at that point was basically uh, tomato soup and Marlboro cigarettes. <laughs> Interesting. Like just, just just so she could pull off that ultra thin look at, uh, that you get. Uh, kind of thing, but uh, uh, that scene where she comes down in the elevator the first time, mm-hmm. uh, down at Frank Lopez's house, mm-hmm. and uh, comes off the elevator, man, she looks stunning. I, I can see why Al Pacino was smitten. Yeah, yeah. And um, the the sister Mary Elizabeth Mastroianni, I recognized her from The Abyss. But yeah. Other than that, I think this might have been her first film. Definitely one of the first. Um, I although the one thing that I thought was interesting. And maybe it was just me. I felt that they kind of looked like each other a little bit. Like their face. Like I felt like Michelle Pfeiffer and her looked similar. And there was that whole subtext going on with him and the sister that was kind of got a little bit weird and creepy as the film went on too. So I I thought, I thought she was really good in this role too. And she was kind of like a bit of a rebel, you know, and all that. But uh, one of the ones that, that stood out to me was Robert Loggia. So my wife is watching this movie with me and she's like, where do I know that guy from? And I'm like, he played the piano with Tom Hanks in Big. <laughs> and she's like, oh, God, yeah, you're right. I also liked him in Officer and a Gentleman. And um, probably known to <laughs> most people as Independence Day. And But he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Jagged Edge, too. So, But I feel like he was in such a pivotal part of the film. Like that scene when he begs for his life. I uh, love that scene. That's the turning point for the film. That's when Pacino rises to the top takes over and and then i love in that scene when when he turns to the one remaining henchman you want a job 
<laughs> like it's just <laughs> such a great scene. Oh my god! So Robert Loja, I, I love when he's shaking with the bottle as they leave. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. He's, he's got the Jack Daniels right. bottle yeah. and he's, he's shaking nervously. Takes a big sip out of it. I love that part. That was good. Um, I wanted to mention a couple of uh, sort of secondary characters in there. Harris Eulin. So he's definitely one of those actors that makes you go like, where, where do I know that guy from? You know, like I've seen him before, right? My wife was the same thing. She's like, where is, where do I know that guy from? He did a lot of TV back in the 70s, but I think recent audiences know him from Ozark. He was Buddy, the guy with the oxygen tank. I don't know if you ever watched Ozark. No. But uh, he was a guy that was, that was in, in that scene too and got shot. He was a cop. I think, uh, I can't remember his character, but uh, re- definitely one of those I guys. Him, I was going to say, I remember him, if I'm correct, that he was in Ghostbusters 2. He, he was, was the judge. Yes, 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 yes. You're right. You're right. He was. But that's where I was, for some reason, yes. it's a small part in a bad movie, but that's where I always remember that guy from. Yeah. And F. Murray Abraham, you know, he um, he obviously was from Amadeus, won Best Actor in, in 84 next year. And here he gets, when he gets hung from the helicopter. Oh my god! It's like Jeez. I was like, I think that was one of it was early enough in the movie that you're like, oh my god! Like, what the hell is this? Like, it just it kind of kind of grabs you, and and then another one that stood out to me as being one of those actors you're like, where do I know him from? Was Mark Margolis? He played the Shadow, because he was in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. I always He's remember Oz, him though. Oz as well. That's where I remember him from. Oh, in Oz. Oh, okay. Yeah. I remember him from there was an old episode of Law and Order. And he was this gun dealer and he shot Paul Sorvino in this hotel room. They were doing this this deal on guns. He just stood out to me in that show. He's a very, very unique actor. I like him a lot too. There's a lot of like it was this movie was very well cast. There's no there's no small parts in this movie, I feel. Like they all are important in their own way, you know. One other thing I wanted to mention too. Sorry, the remember the interrogation scene when Pacino first gets to the U.S. They're interrogating him, and I, I said to my wife, "I'm like that voice. That's Charles Durning, because his voice is pretty recognizable." And they pan to the actor, and it's not him. And I was like, "What the? Hell? That was Charles Durning." I know. I went and looked it up. It was Charles Durning. Him and Dennis Franz provided uncredited voiceover work for that scene. So I didn't lose my mind. It was just, you know, that was going on. Um, anyone else in the cast? I think that pretty much covers everybody. Anything else? For, me, else? for me, the the big scene stealer, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't really care for anything else he's done after this, but Stephen Bauer is uh, Manny Rivera. Mm. Perfect sidekick. Absolutely perfect sidekick. Like, he was so perfect for it that when he actually showed up to do the audition, they didn't even let him read lines. They're like, you got it. You're in. <laughs> well, he was Cuban, Cuban too, so that helps. He's the only real Cuban in yeah, the cast. Yeah, But when he showed up and they they saw his look and his swagger and they just said, you know what, man, it's yours. Like He didn't even have to read a line. And Crazy. I thought in the movie, I feel that Pacino's character would not be who he was if he didn't have... Stephen Bauer playing uh, Manny uh, Rivera as his sidekick. He made it uh, the Robin to his Batman kind of thing. And they originally were eyeing before Stephen Bauer. They were talking about possibly putting John Travolta in that role. Mm. No, would not have worked. 1983 John Travolta? No. Nope. No. No, no, exactly. Uh, not any era John Travolta. <laughs> <laughs> he but, did a voiceover too. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> 
but yeah, I thought Stephen Bauer personally. When I watch this movie, I always feel like Stephen Bauer is just that. Uh, like you, like for hockey fans, he, everybody talks about Wayne Gretzky, but everybody forgets sometimes how great Mark Messier was as well because he had to play in the shadow of Wayne Gretzky all the time. To me, Stephen Bauer was like Mark Messier. He was so good, but it just got overshadowed by how good Al Pacino was as Tony Montana. But without Stephen Bauer, you don't have the the Tony Montana that you have. He, he needed him to be that guy. And that pivotal scene, too, right at the end when, when he kills him, you know? Yeah, see... See for me, for me that that's that's the one part of the movie where I I I don't find perfect was you, interesting. You know, yeah, I'm you mentioned that before. You know, I was wondering Mary what it was. Elizabeth Mastriano or yeah. whatever her name is, Antonio. I I personally thought that her acting felt like when you watch a Mexican soap opera. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like it was way, it was way too much and way too over the top. And I felt the storyline. Even if it wasn't in there, I know it, it played a pivotal part at the end, but even if it wasn't in there, I, I felt that it didn't really progress the story along anywhere. I always feel that if I were to redo the movie, I would have it where Al Pacino walks in and finds Manny with Elvira and shoots Manny because he's sleeping with his wife. Mm-hmm. To me, that would have made it more perfect. Interesting. We don't really know what happened to Elvira. She got up and left, and then we never yeah. saw her again. It was interesting because you know? I felt that it worked, and and it worked for a couple of reasons. Number one, when when he kills Manny, it's it's over. Like he's killed part of himself. Like you said, that was his sidekick and yeah. part of him. So that was a big part of demonstrating his downfall. But the other thing was is that I noticed too. As soon as he killed him, I said to my wife, "He's wearing a wedding ring," and that's when the the, the sisters like, "We just got married." Yeah. So what are you doing? And that's when you realize Montana, you got sloppy. You're making mistakes now. Like this yeah. is you're, you're thinking with your with your heart and not with your head, and that's not how you you stay at the top. So you're done. So I thought it was I thought it was good. I thought it was a pivotal part, and I thought yeah, like for it. me, the best part about it is the way I like it. I know it's a long movie, and I know before we got into the show, Derek was talking about how they had an intermission when it was shown in theaters because it was so long back then. Nowadays, audiences can sit through three mm-hmm. hours, but back then they couldn't. And I just love how the first half of the movie was how he went from being nothing to the cream of the crop rise to the top. And the intermission started when he went to go get uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and he said, come on, pack your clothes, you're coming with me after he kills Frank Lopez. And he sees a Goodyear blimp come by that says the world is yours. And then that's where the intermission was. And when he came back from the intermission, it was the montage uh, of, you know, him, you know, growing and growing in success. But then the second half of the movie was basically he's got off the chairlift at the top of the mountain and now he's skiing down the hill. Everything from there went downhill. So I love how the movie's divided in half. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one movie, but two stories told in a way where it's perfectly done from first half bottom of the bottom of the pile uh, coming over on a boat and working a you know in a food truck to being uh you know the miami kingpin of cocaine to in the end you know he, he, he's having to fight off um uh you know uh, hit squads in his mansion floating floating his wife's in a left him and he's yeah. killed his best friend yeah. like it, to me i love how that's done i love how it's it's two stories but divided right in half i want to talk a little bit about the the director Brian De Palma, because he was part of the film school generation. 
that first group of Hollywood directors that sort of originated outside the studio system. Like they all went to film school, right? Other members of the film school generation were like John Milius and George Lucas and Spielberg and Coppola. Well, Coppola was a bit older. He was like a father figure to those guys. But uh, but uh, De Palma really came to prominence in the 70s with Carrie. And then he did The Fury, Dressed to Kill and Blowout. But before that, he directed this movie called Phantom of the Paradise with Paul Williams as Spawn. I always remember oh, that. Oh, God. Yeah, I've seen it. So, so you love this movie. What do you think of De Palma as a director overall? De Palma Great. as a director, like for the time that he was in, it was very, he would be like an 80s version of a Tarantino to me. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it was, he had a unique style of directing. It was different than, you know, your basic directors at the time. He was doing something unique and something different at the time, the way he was shooting scenes, the type of music he was using. And he was, his movies were more known for characters and dialogue, which again is something Tarantino's known for. So, you know, he's not Tarantino, obviously, but uh, I would say that in the, in the 80s, he would be considered like a Tarantino. He was sort of that uh, avant-garde, off-the-cuff, out-of-left-field type of director, but it worked. And Derek, what are your thoughts on De Palma as the director here? Or just yeah, in general, for, do you like him? I mean, for him, it's sort of hit or miss for me. I, I'm, I, mm-hmm. I don't dislike his work, but I'm not a, a huge fan. I'm just looking at his uh, at his catalog now. Like I've, I've seen a few of these movies, and I, I mean, I'm certainly aware of them. Like he, he did The Untouchables mm-hmm. uh, in 87, and he did uh, Carlito's Way in 93, and then the first uh, Mission Impossible with Tom Cruise in 96. and uh, Casualties you know, of War. He, yeah, yeah. Uh, Snake Eyes with Nicolas Cage, which we were talking about not too long ago. I just rewatched that one not too long ago, where it's a movie that takes place all in one night. Um, and it's got like one of those opening sequences, like that non-cut sequence that goes long, like a really long time. So mm-hmm. it's clear that he's he's got a talent and ability, and he certainly made a name for himself. Uh, and he's certainly got some huge hits on his uh, on his resume. But you know, for me, it's not. Uh, he's not necessarily going to make my top twenty all-time directors. I just, I just. You know, he's got so many things on his resume that I'm not interested in. I'm just like, man. So like I mentioned, he was nominated for the Razzie Award for Worst Director <laughs> for this movie. I have no idea what the hell they were thinking about this. I thought the direction was one of the best parts of this film. The, the, it was super stylistic. There was lots of sweeping shots. The movie is basically made up of a series of masters and zooming to close-ups rather than like relying on editing separate shots. I thought the direction was fantastic i really thought it was and it was interesting because he wasn't the original choice to direct this they wanted to bring in sydney lumet they actually they brought him in to do it and he obviously had success derek with one of your favorite movies 12 angry men and which um, is i saw is coming up again on uh, turner classics next week i got it set to record so i can watch it again nice and he also directed you know one of my favorite pacino films with dog day afternoon and this film would have been interesting had lumet directed it but I think it's perfect the way De Palma did it. I, I really do. I thought he was great. Um, also want to mention Oliver Stone because he was the he was the screenwriter. Of this he was a relatively new screenwriter at the time. He was just coming off this bomb that he did. He wrote called The Hand, and it was a movie I remember watching. It was with Michael Caine about this guy whose hand gets cut off, and then the severed hand goes around killing people. It's as dumb as it sounds, trust me. <laughs> and uh, Oliver, and once Oliver Stone wrote the first draft of the script, he submitted it. Sidney Lumet hated it so much he walked off the project. That's when De Palma came in. Uh, 
And, um, but Oliver Stone went on to have a nice little run in Hollywood back in like the eighties and nineties. Like he was pretty good. He never shied away from controversy, very vocal about his political beliefs. I still think Platoon is one of the greatest American films ever made. For me, it ranks right up there with Citizen Kane, The Godfather, There Will Be Blood. Like, I think it's phenomenal. So I I like the script in this film. I thought it was quite good. Yep. Greg, obviously you agree. Oh, I agree, absolutely. I, thought, I like the, the dialogue in this movie. Like, there's so just... Good so many good scenes like like you mentioned like the 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 scene with the shootout at uh, Lopez Automotive is fantastic I, I also absolutely love 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 the scene when the restaurant when Pacino stands up and he he does that you people need me mm-hmm. uh, uh, soliloquy the kind of thing that he does I think that's fantastic uh, I also love the part where uh, when Manny gets shot down by the lady and he, and he you know he's all angry and upset and Pacino does that bit where he says to him, now I see how it works is first you get the money. And when you get the money, you get the power. And when you get the power, then you get the women. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, I thought the script, oh, and the other one too, you may have to bleep this out, but when he says, my word and my are the two things I don't break for anybody. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I always felt that like... I think that makes it past the censors. I think you can say I think it's all good. Oh, can you say Okay, yeah, I think so. Are you but, sure it's not one of those ones where you can't say, but you can say Balls Creek? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. there, you there you go. Yes, like that. But yeah, I think I thought the script, the script writing was fantastic. One of the, I think one of the reasons why it worked was because, you know, it felt authentic. Like it felt like, you know, when they wanted to portray this movie as being, you know, Cuban gangsters. They didn't hold back. They 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 made it as authentic as it could be, and I think that was one of the biggest selling points of this this whole movie was that, you know, they they made it authentic. You know, like uh, the way it was and the way it was done was not, uh, you know, like you didn't feel like it was being forced by the actors to you know make it sound authentic. It just came off as being authentic and. So again, yeah, the script for sure. Yeah, so many, so many real gangsters, even to this day, say like, this is realistic. You know, like they they even say that. I want to ask you something. I'm going to put you on the spot, both of you. I want to ask you what you think the overall theme of this film is. And I'll start us off because I think this film, as I watch it, is about the American dream. That's what I think it's about. I mean, basically, Tony Montana is a capitalist, you know, like people would just want something. He's selling it. So the other thing is like the theme too is like like material goods don't equal happiness because this guy's got money. He's got people waiting on him, serving him. He's got this beautiful wife. He's got it all and he doesn't enjoy any of it. He's not happy. That uh, that scene in the nightclub where he's with his wife and Manny, he's just miserable and he's bored, you know? And even later when, when that scene when he puts his head in all that pile of cocaine, it's like he needs something anything he just he can't find it so i don't know to me the theme is the american dream um greg what do you think what do, what do you think is the overarching theme for me the for me the theme is a combination of careful what you wish for mm. and and heavy is the crown that uh, you know that you wear on your head um kind of thing the the one thing i love about this movie though is is that it, it there's no good people in this movie everybody's everybody's bad 
And there's no nice people in this movie. I think Ernie is the <laughs> maybe the only nice guy in this movie. But even at the end of the movie, Al Pacino is, is a bad guy as he is. You realize he's a bad guy, but he has morals. He won't shoot you in the back. He he'll look you right in the face before he shoots you. And that whole scene with uh, where they're they're gonna blow up the guy's yes, car and the, that's the, what the I was thinking. Kids in the car. It's like yeah. it's like you, you you coward man. I'm not doing. I didn't. Do, I'm not doing no kids. Yeah. So for me, it's one of those things that even though you're a bad guy, are you really 100% truly that bad an individual? Like he wasn't as bad as we thought he was because he had morals and he had scruples. It's just, you know, we're rooting for the bad guy. Tony Montana was not a nice guy, but at the end of the movie, we we were with him. We were rooting for him. But, yeah, I believe it's uh, careful what you wish for, and uh, heavy is the crown is, is what I get out of it. Derek, anything else? Uh, for me, I think more of a broad and simplified statement is greed. Beware of greed. This movie is all about greed. He wants, he wants, he wants, he gets, he wants more. He wants what he can't have. Oh, this is my friend. I want his money. I want his wife. I want his life. I want his job. I want what he has. I want this power. I want more. And that's ultimately what leads to his downfall. If he could have reached a point and just been content and satisfied and said, this is what I've aspired to. I have it. The The second half of the movie would have been so different. But with greed, it was the ambition, the, not even ambition. It's it's the outright greed. I always want more than I've got. And in many cases, it's for no good reason other than I don't have it. That's why I want it. And it's that, that greed that just ultimately leads to his downfall. So, And nothing yeah. says more about his greed than that bathtub in the middle of his be- bedroom floor. Yeah, it reminded it, me of uh, the Eddie Murphy, uh, James Brown hot tub party. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yes. So I, I like that because when they when that camera pulls up on the crane and you see him sort of in the middle of that hot tub, surrounded by all his riches, he's got the mansion and the gold and everything, but he's all alone. It reminded me of Citizen yep. Kane. It really did. I thought that was that was mm-hmm. pretty good. Um, yeah. In some ways, you could maybe make the argument that this movie is like an over-the-top satire, almost like a condemnation of the American dream, if you really wanted to get into it. You guys said you studied in film school, so you maybe would have gotten into that. I want to talk a little bit, we touch base on influences, and I think this is important because this had to be, you know, you mentioned that De Palma was like the Tarantino of his day. This movie influenced Quentin Tarantino. There's no oh, two no ways question. about it. Like how it uses violence. But the thing is, it doesn't use violence in a way that it, it exploits it. It's it's more like a storytelling device to, to kind of show you the dark side of these characters and, and how it defines them. You know, like if you think of like Reservoir Dogs, you don't see the cop's ear get cut off. And in Scarface, you don't see all the gruesome details in that chainsaw scene. In both times, it's just left up to the imagination, you know? It's more effective, I think. Anything else? This movie has obviously influenced other things. What? Do you guys play video games at all? I don't really, really play video games, but remember Grand Theft Auto? Yep. There's no two ways that 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 game was based on Scarface. It's almost like a shot for shot. It's like playing the movie out, you know? But well, there's an actual Scarface video game too. Oh, that doesn't surprise me. So, so here's the thing: we're we're, we're talking about how this movie has influenced other stuff in pop culture. 
But but here's the question that I have. What do you think influenced it? Because it, it, I don't think it was influenced by typical Hollywood gangster movies because they were all about, you know, the action and all the stuff that was going on. This one was more about the characters, I, I feel like. Like, it's not exactly a character study, but it, but it certainly focuses on the characters and trying to show, you know, people with their basic desires and, like, you know, all wrapped up in capitalism and power. For me, I, I was watching this. I thought this movie was influenced by The Godfather. You know, and just instead of Italians or Cuban, instead of prostitution and gambling, it's cocaine. I felt that The Godfather was the biggest influence on this film. I don't know if you agree with me or not, Craig. Um, I can't. I don't see it, to be honest with you. Uh, I don't think it's The Godfather that influenced it. I, I still think, again, it's the 1932 film okay. where somebody saw it and just basically said, well, why don't we take, you know, prohibition and turn prohibition into cocaine? And at the time, the the, the story of uh, Cuban refugees coming to Miami was a big story. So, you know, we'll make it about the Cuban refugees coming over to Miami. And and so I think it's just the influence was just that 1932 movie. Somebody saw it and found a way, you know, like a cover song for a uh, like a band. You can take an old song and say, uh, like I was telling my friend the other day, I was listening to Duran Duran's Planet Earth. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, if you get rid of Nick Rhodes' synthesizer in Planet Earth and kind of heavy up those drums a little bit, you can make Planet Earth a very heavy metal type song. And my friend was like, you know what, you're right. You, I can totally see it. And it's the same thing. I think they were watching that 32 movie and just went, you know what, I can take this and I can make it 1980s but edgier. Mm. That's what I think. So, Derek, I, 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 I yeah. would say... So I would say uh, I can't think of any direct movie connections to this one, but I think mm-hmm. it's more just it's a product of the time. I think sort of leaning on what Greg said, it was like they the people that put this together were sort of like, how can we make a certain statement? I think you got to remember what was happening in the world at the time. They just come out of Vietnam. Nixon, the whole Nixon thing had just happened. You know, uh, the capitalism was was killing it in the early 80s with uh, Reagan becoming the president. I think it was just sort of a combination of things. And you'd already talked about Oliver Stone being the scriptwriter. Obviously, he has very strong political views. And I think that was just sort of the, you know, he, the world he's living in. He's looking around and sort of going, how can I make a commentary on this? Uh, it, you know, being a screenwriter, how can I turn this into it? And so, yeah, and maybe it was like Greg said, somebody somebody had suggested this this idea of of making this updated remake. And you know, you get enough enough of the right people together at the right time, and they sort of go, I can build on that. So that that was more where I felt the influences came from was just it's a product of its time. Look at what was happening in America in the five years leading up to it, and I think that's a, a pretty pretty direct line from one to the act to the next. And Greg, did you have like a favorite scene or in the film or a scene that really stands out more than the others? Uh, again, me, I, I can't like this movie comes on late at night all the time. I mean, it drives my, my girlfriend crazy because we're, we're about ready to go to bed. And all of a sudden it comes on. She's like, ah, oh, damn it. So <laughs> three she, knows hours. She, she knows she's up to like two or three in the morning at this point now, but I can't go to bed until that, uh, either, uh, depending on how tired I am, uh, until the Frank Lopez, uh, nothing but a cockroach mm-hmm. uh, scene at uh, uh, Lopez Motors, or the scene in the restaurant with uh, "You People Need Me." Those those two are my favorite uh, my favorite scenes. Uh, also, I like the. Uh, of course, everybody loves the end. The end's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. 
Uh, I, I was actually, I didn't even know this till today that Steven Spielberg uh, uh, directed part of that ending sequence. Yeah, he huh. did. He, he was, him and Paul De Palma were, were friends. He was on set when they were shooting some of that final scene. So he got behind the camera. He shot the scene that was kind of like the low one where the mercenaries are climbing up the walls with the grappling hooks. Yep. Uh, he did that. Uh, he obviously stayed uncredited. You know, it was just a fun thing to do together. But here's, here's the thing about that final scene in Spielberg for me. And maybe it was just me. But that final scene with the statue and the banner at the bottom of that double staircase. Yeah. I completely believe that Spielberg recreated that exact visual for the end of Jurassic Park. The double no, staircase. With the banner and the T-Rex. Now that I've seen this movie, I'm like, there's no question in my mind. Spielberg was paying an homage to Scarface with that final scene. Stood out. Wow. I never thought of that before. Yeah. yeah. I was watching. I thought, oh my God, because I love Jurassic Park so much. It just jumped out to me. So I've never, I looked, I went online, looked, I don't know, maybe I'm just a cult of one, but I I didn't read anything about it, but I, I, I cannot believe that Spielberg was not influenced or not trying to recreate that scene because it looks the same. You watch it, it's like, this is the exact same visual. Exact same visual. You know? The 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 mise-en-scene is is identical, so. One thing we didn't really touch on that I want to draw on is uh, the the soundtrack, the music, not the the pop music or anything, you know, not the montage music. Mm -hmm. Just the choice of using the synthesizer uh, sounds. uh, That's very De Palma. Oh yeah, uh, to do that in that movie. But uh, I found that if you that soundtrack with the synthesizers really enhanced the scenes. I agree. I, I like the score. That yeah. '80s techno synth thing. Giorgio Moroder had a style all his own. If you think about, he did American Gigolo and Cat People and Electric Dreams. I really like. It dates the film a bit, but I mean, it's a film yeah. from the '80s. But no, I think I read somewhere that someone wanted to do a re-release of the film in the 2000s with like a hip hop score. What do you think of that idea? I hate it. I like no, this. Score. Hate it. Yeah. Sounds good in your head, but uh, doesn't it won't translate well onto the screen? Absolutely not. It's this is one of those movies where if you try and remake it, you're you're gonna falter. No matter how how good you think it is, it's just not gonna. It's you're not gonna be able to touch uh, what I'm, this did. No. I'm glad you mentioned the montage scene because when it shows his rise to the top, the song that they play during it's like push it to the limit. Yep. That scene. Yeah. Totally reminded me of the scene in Team America World Police when they do it's a montage. Even Rocky had a montage. Like the song even sounds like it. It was just so funny. So uh, it was funny. I went into Planet Fitness this week, and and uh, at Planet Fitness, you can send in requests mm-hmm. uh, for the music to be played over the Planet Fitness radio that's on uh, while you're working out. And uh, when I went into the locker room to go get changed, push it to the limit was somebody requested that. <laughs> Nice. Nice. Two other other quick ones I want to mention. So that I just want to go back to that chainsaw scene for a second. It's so well done. Like it's what you don't see. The way that De Palma pans from the window of the room all the way down to the road where you see the getaway car and then back up slowly back up to the window. I just love the way it's done. It's so good. And another one that stood out to me was that nightclub scene. When he's when Tony's in the nightclub and he sees the guy dancing with his sister and they go in the bathroom, the music stops, the sound stops, and the camera just zooms in on Tony's eyes, reminding me of Raging Bull when Jake saw anyone even talking to Kathy Moriarty. Just this 
rage and jealousy. And then, like I said, all those underlying sexual connotations between him and the sister, like that she plays up later. It's just visceral and it's creepy and gut wrenching too. That scene really got me. It it felt like a a bit of a gut punch when I watched it. I have a question for both you guys. Derek, we'll start with you. Is the movie too long? 170 minutes, Um, 10 minutes shy of three hours. What do you think? Is it too long? No, I think, no, I think it needs to be, it needs to be long to really make the point it's trying to make. And I'm glad you, I'm glad this sort of lets me talk about this. So one of the things that when I was watching it this time around was the idea that part of what uh, causes Tony's demise is, you know, he breaks rule number two, don't get high on your own supply. He clearly starts to abuse drugs. And I watch movies like this. I've like, whenever I watch movies like this, it's always like, I, you, you start to ask yourself, like, well, why is the why is the person making these bad choices? And in this case, they're you know they're not subtle about it at all. He's heavily into cocaine, and it's causing him to be paranoid. And it's funny as I was watching this, or after I finished watching this, I'm at work the other day, and I'm I'm doing some research for the movie, and I'm typing, you know, symptoms of too much cocaine use. Does cocaine make you paranoid? How long do you have to be on cocaine before you see? And then I realized I'm on my work computer. I probably shouldn't be doing this here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know why they called me in for a drug test this morning, but uh, but yeah. So, a podcast, I swear. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so no, I back to your original question. Do I think it's too long? I think uh, you know if you could trim five or ten minutes out of it, great. But at this point, once you're past that two two and a half hour mark, yeah. what what's five minutes make? exactly? You know, it's 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 you're you're there, and I think you need it. You need that slow rise to power. And then you need that equally slow decline. It can't just be like two hours rise to power and a 30 minute fall off the cliff. It's like, it's, it's too jarring. You need, you need that balance of, you know, the going up, just like we're saying, you know, it's the rise, you get to the halfway point, he reaches the pinnacle and the fall as, you know, he starts to make more and more bad choices as he's driven by greed and paranoia fueled by his cocaine use. Yeah. In the moment, as I was watching it and my wife even said this to me too, I felt like the second act could have been shortened a bit, like when he started his fall. But like as I'm reflecting back on it, I think it just works. I think it's fine the way it is. I I like it. I, mm-hmm. Greg, obviously, you don't think there's any issues with the length of the movie? No, God, no. I, no. I, again, I could see where audiences 40 years ago may have, mm-hmm. you know, like, again, they weren't used to three-hour movies. But you put that in the theater today, no one's going to complain about the length of time on that. Right, I mean, for, uh, Avengers Endgame was longer than that. That's true. Good point. Uh, let's go around the table and give it a rating out of 10. Derek, out of 10, what would you give Scarface? Give it an eight and a half. Okay. Uh, Greg? Nine and a half. I've been doing this podcast for eight seasons. We're in our ninth season now. Ninth oh season oh now, gosh. yeah. Uh, one of the best films you've ever made me watch on this podcast. 9.5. Nice. Well, I get the credit goes to Greg. This would not have been my yeah. first choice, other than the fact that I knew this was Greg's first choice. So, and and then it was just one of those ones that kind of shocked me a bit. That it, it kind of never saw it, and I just never really had a desire to see it. And now that I've seen it, I'm like, I'm so glad I did. It was just great. Okay, so that's that. Uh, let's move on to this fun with Caveman. All right, my friend Derek, it is over to you. You wanted to handle the trivia this week, so what do you got for us? All right, so I've been uh, going back listening to our show, uh, mm-hmm. The Greatest Hit Episodes, where we do our, our recaps of the trivia. Mm-hmm. And uh, I listened to an episode not too long ago where I believe we were we did a movie starring Harrison Ford, 
And I gave you a list of movies that Harrison Ford was in, along with another movie with a similar sounding title. Okay. You had to pick which one he was in. So I decided, you know, Al Pacino has a pretty long and extensive movie database. Yeah, Uh, he's been in a lot of movies. So I've got a list of 20 movies here that star Al Pacino. Okay. And 20 movies that sound a lot like movies that star Al Pacino. (laughs) Okay. So this is how I want to do this. Okay. I'll read you the two titles. All right. Chris, you need to try and pick the one that you think is an Al Pacino title. And then, Greg, you need to tell me one thing about the other movie. Because I know Greg's going to know all the other movies because most of the other movies are quite new. Okay. Okay. All right. And and Greg, you can help Chris if he has no idea. Yeah. Uh, Which I might, you know. Yeah. Okay. And some of these are super duper easy. Some of these are a little more challenging. So, okay. So the first one, you, I'm going to two movies. You just tell me which one has Al Pacino for Chris. And Chris, wait until I read both titles, uh, just in case you think the answer is the first one. Okay. All right. Was Al Pacino in Any Given Sunday or Any Which Way But Loose? Oh, he was in Any Given Sunday. Yes. Okay. Greg, what can you tell me about Any Which Way But Loose? Anything. Uh, I'd be better at this other happens. part. Play I'd be better at the second part. Co-star with an orangutan. There yes. you go. Yep. <laughs> All right. Which one of these has Al Pacino? Danny Collins or Michael Collins? I will say Michael Collins. Nope, that would be wrong. The oh. answer is Danny Collins from 2015. Greg, are you familiar with the movie Michael Collins? Can you tell me anything about it? Has it got Liam Neeson in it? It sure does. <laughs> okay, yeah. See, I knew Greg would be good at the second half of this. Yeah. All right. Is Al Pacino in Deep Blue Sea or The Sea of Love? Oh, he was in Sea of Love with Ellen Park. Yes, he was. Greg, Deep Blue Sea? Oh, Deep Blue Sea, was it? Didn't we nickname that Big Brown Ocean because it was yeah. so <laughs> Yes, yes, I'll accept yeah. that. It also has a, a scene where Samuel Jackson gets eaten by a shark that nobody saw coming. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Comes out of the bad, water and bad, bad uh, CGI sharks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. All right. Was Al Pacino in Dick Tracy or Fun with Dick and Jane? Oh, he was in Dick Tracy for sure. Yes, he was. Yeah. Greg, you know anything about Fun with Dick and Jane, the movie? Uh, uh, one of uh, many Jim Carrey flops. Yep, er. Oh, I was thinking more of the original. The original. No, I knew one that's with, a, uh, that's the one I figured we'd go with. Yeah. All right. Was Al Pacino in Donnie Darko or Donnie Brasco? Oh, he was in Donnie Brasco. Yes, he was. Greg, what can you tell me about Donnie Darko? Uh, Donnie Darko uh, made me have a new respect for Patrick Swayze because he played such a creepy dark character. Was he even in that? I honestly haven't seen yeah. it. I just yeah, thought, to, didn't he didn't he play like didn't he play like somebody who was kind of like looking at children on the internet kind of thing? Oh, I don't know. I don't think so. This one has Jake oh. Gyllenhaal, and there's like a scary bunny on the cover. Ah, oh. anyway. I, I could be wrong. Okay, all right. Uh, okay, was Al Pacino in Frankie and Johnny or Frankie and Alice? Well, he was in Frankie and Johnny. Yes, he was. Yeah. Craig, you ever heard of Frankie and Alice from 2010? Uh, no. No. It stars Halle Berry. I can uh, do that. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. Back to Chris. Mm-hmm. Was was Al Pacino in Hansel and Gretel or Jack and Jill? Oh, it's got to be Hansel and Gretel. No, it oh. was not. He was in the Adam Sandler flop, oh, Jack and Jill. God. Uh, Greg, do you know anything about the 2013 Hansel and Gretel movie? Wasn't it like a weird action yes. version with the guy from, uh, his name's escaping me right now, but he played Hawkeye. Yep, Jeremy Renner, yep. Jeremy Renner, thank you. Nice. Yeah. All right. 
Was Al Pacino in Heat or Cool World? Oh, he was in Heat. Yes, of course he was. Greg, what can you tell me about Cool World? Uh, cool World was a, an attempt to uh, jump on the success of Who Framed Roger Rabbit with Kim Bassinger trying to be like uh, Roger Rabbit's wife. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right. Was Al Pacino in House of Wax or House of Gucci? Oh, he was in House of Gucci. Yes, yes, he yeah. was. Just My wife made me go back. watch that stupid movie. It was yeah. terrible. Yeah. Greg, 2005, House of Wax. Can you tell me anything about it? Perhaps who started it? <laughs> yeah, the best part is when Paris Hilton got killed. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> yes! <laughs> That's the one. All right. Chris, yep. was Al Pacino in Insomnia or Dr. Sleep? I'll go with Insomnia. It's a guess. Yes, he was. Oh, okay. uh, Greg, guess. what do you know about Dr. Sleep? <laughs> uh, was Dr. Sleep like some horror genre movie? It was. It was um, came out in 2019. It was a sequel to a very popular horror movie. Horror is not my genre at all. I know no. nothing about horror. It, it was the sequel to The Shining. It started you and oh, McGregor. Okay. Oh, I, yeah. Now that you mentioned it, I remember hearing about it, but never saw it. Yeah, it was not good. All right. Was Al Pacino in Justice League or Injustice for All? Oh, he was in Injustice for All. Yes, he was. Greg, what can you tell me about the Justice League? Justice League, once again, the DC franchise screwed up a fantastic opportunity and trying to cash in on the success of the Avengers. Yep, -er. All right. Was Al Pacino in Ocean's 12 or Ocean's 13? Oh, God. I only ever saw the first one, so I will go with Ocean's 13. That's correct. Okay, guess. Nice, easy one. Well, can you tell me one thing about Ocean's 12? Oh, uh, Mark Wahlberg still kicking himself in the ass for not taking the role that Matt Damon had in that movie so that he could finish Planet of the Apes. Oh, I didn't know that. That's <laughs> nice. awesome. All right. Was Al Pacino in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Once Upon a Time in America? Oh, he was in Once, in a, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes. Yes, he was. Yeah. Greg, Once Upon a Time in America. Do you know who starred in that movie from 1984? Oh, Oh, man, I, I was thinking of, I, think, I was thinking it was that one about the mouse that came over to America. That oh. was by Steve wasn't, that, wasn't that like five eh? or something? Yeah, that was American Tale. Uh, no. Once Upon a Time in America starred Robert De Niro. So. Oh, yeah, and um, uh, wasn't, uh, wasn't what's his name in it too, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio? Uh, wouldn't surprise me. It was, uh, no, I, I don't think it. so, but it was about gangsters, yeah. It was about gangsters, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, then no, it's a different movie. <clears throat> All right. Uh, Chris, yep. was Al Pacino in Searching for Bobby Fischer or Bobby Deerfield? Oh, God, I will go with uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer. Nope, he was yeah. in Bobby Deerfield, okay. 1977. Right. Greg, you know anything about Searching for Bobby Fischer? Uh, it's got something to do with the game of chess. Yes, yes, it does. It stars Joe Montaigne from 1993. Oh. All right, was Al Pacino in The Devil's Own or The Devil's Advocate? He was in The Devil's... Oh... I, I will say he was in The Devil's Own. He was not. He was in The Devil's Advocate, where he played a lawyer who yeah. was the devil, hence the clever play of the title. Greg, do you remember The Devil's Own from your blockbuster days? Oh, boy. Was, it in, was it in the erotica section? <laughs> no. No. Uh, then it's, no. <laughs> no. It's starring Harrison Ford, and uh, I believe Brad Pitt as well. Oh, yeah! 
Yes. Yeah. It was very popular at Blockbuster when that it came was out. Not we a great had a hard movie. time keeping it in. Yeah, not a great movie, but it rented well. It did. Uh, all right. Was Al Pacino in The Flying Scotsman or The Irishman? Oh, The Irishman. Yeah. Uh, Greg, you know anything about The Flying Scotsman from 2006? Is that a biography about Roddy Piper? No, no, it was not. It, it was a biography, though. Oh. It was about, it was about a, a bicycle cyclist. It starred Johnny Lee Miller. Uh, it was actually pretty good. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, we only got a couple more to go. Was Al Pacino in The Insider or The Outsiders? Oh, he was in The Insider. Yes, he was. Yeah. Greg, I know you know The Outsiders. Ah, absolutely. Stay golden, pony boy. There you mm-hmm. go. Do it All for right. Johnny. Do it for Johnny. <laughs> was Al Pacino in The Recruit or The Rookie? Ooh, um, it would be a guess again. I'll say The Rookie. No, he was not. He was in The Recruit with um, Colin Farrell. Greg, do you know anything about the 1990 film The Rookie? Yeah, it's your friend Clint Eastwood. And it is. It, yeah, totally is. All right. Was Al Pacino in Tin Man or Scarecrow? Uh, it'll be a guess again. I will go with uh, Scarecrow. It was Scarecrow, 1973. Mm, nice. uh, 2007's Tin Man. Greg, I assume you've never heard of this. No, I think so. I think it wasn't about a bunch of guys selling aluminum siding. Uh, honestly, I don't think so, but I don't oh. know. It stars Zoe Deschanel. Oh, definitely not that. <laughs> <laughs> she's no. another one I tried. I don't watch anything she's in. She freaks me out. Her eyes scare me. <laughs> and the other All one right. was John Ritter, I think. That was Tin Men. Oh, Tin this Man. Tin Man. Oh, Tin Man. Yeah. Merman, Dad. Merman. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're having too much fun here. Last one. Was Al Pacino in two for the money or three for the road? Um, Jeez, I don't know. I've just been guessing at this one again. So I will say two for the money. Yes. Two for the money. It's about sports betting. Had Matthew McConaughey in it. Greg, you ever heard of three for the road from 1987? Is it one of those movies that you couldn't rent at Blockbuster? No, no. Uh uh, It stars Charlie Sheen, apparently. Anyway, oh, you did pretty good. So. Yeah, you know, you did pretty good, Chris. You got a lot of these. Yeah, some, some of them were just good. lucky guesses, but some of them yeah. I knew right away. So I, yeah, I was surprised at how many had how many other ones I could find titles that were either very similar, like similar. Or, or thematically yeah. appropriate. So, so, uh, so Greg, I want to say thanks for joining us again, bud. You obviously love yeah, this movie a lot, me, and it's always nice to have you out. And it was nice to have you out in the capacity where we weren't just talking about music. So yeah, exactly. You see, I'm a, I'm a jack of all trades, man. You are. So does that mean you're going to come back and join us again sometime soon? Absolutely, man. Anytime. Oh, that would be great. And Derek, next time we come out, I guess we should do another movie, right? Sound good? Sure. Yeah. Hey, man, you're you're up. You, you, I think since this movie, this week's movie is a little bit heavy, you know, lots of drugs and profanity and violence. So I think I'd like to lighten things up a little bit for next time. If you're cool, I want to have a little bit of fun. I want to go back. I want to go back all the way to 1984 as I want to do. I want to go on a little adventure that's going to take us treasure hunting into South America. Michael Douglas and Kathleen Turner in Romancing the Stone. It's streaming on Disney Plus, so readily available for you to view before we we review it next week. So what do you think? We'll come back next week and we're going to talk all about Romancing the Stone. You down for that? 
I saw Romancing the Stone in the theater in 1984, and I haven't seen it since. Ooh, so I was, is... I was 10 years old when I saw this movie. So, so this it'll be, be interesting, interesting 40 years back. later to see how it holds up or doesn't hold up. No, yes. I'm looking forward to it. No, that'll be good. All right. So I tell you what, and until then, we'll come back next week. We'll review Romancing the Stone. If you if you want to watch the movie, like I say, it's on Disney Plus. If you want to watch it before you come back and listen to the podcast, that'd be great. But until then, I'm Chris McBrien. That's Greg Martin and Derek Myers. And we're all saying thanks for taking the time to listen to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.